Welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freightways for all things related to the consumer packaged goods, uh, CPG industry, and their supply chains. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. Distal. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freightways. Also follow the CPG industry. And uh, today I'm going to talk about um, you know some of the companies that uh, reported last week. Uh, you know, Kellogg reported last week. Also going to go through some. Uh, macroeconomic data and what that says about uh, the state of the consumer and whether consumers are going to continue to buy CPG uh, items in the quantities that they've been buying it. Um, you know, it seems like the elasticities are still low, but rising. That seems to be the phrase that we're hearing a lot from uh, various players in the CPG industry. And then I'll also go through uh, what's happening on the railroads. There's still a lot of concern about a potential railroad strike um, You know, a couple of weeks from now, and um, I'll, go, I'll talk about those, and I'll also talk about uh, what's happening with, in the world of rail intermodal uh, negotiations coming up for contract rates, so I'll talk about uh, those things uh, today, and uh, before I do that, I would like to thank RJW Logistics Group for sponsoring this show. RJW owns and operates every step of the middle mile. As an asset-based integrated logistics company, they offer a full suite of retail supply chain solutions under one roof, including industry-leading uh, retail consolidation that consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full month after month to many retailers. RJW's programs offer global uh, suppliers control and transparency, helping them improve in-stocks, achieve retailer compliance, and grow market share, and also increase sales. Visit rjwgroup.com to optimize your supply chain today. So big thanks to RJW uh, Logistics Group. Have had them on the stock out a couple of times here uh, recently would encourage you to go back and um, you know, listen to those uh, shows or, or reach out to, to RJW. Uh, so with that, I'll talk a little bit about uh, the macroeconomic conditions and uh, specifically those that are impacting uh, the consumer. So I want to bring up this first slide on total revolving uh, credit outstanding. So U-shaped uh, chart here. And what's interesting is, um, so these are in uh, billions, so that's uh, 1.1 tr uh, trillion dollars uh, before the pandemic, and it's it's increased. It's now about five percent above uh, pre-pandemic levels, up about 15 percent from a year ago, up about 1.5 percent from the past month. So, what this says is, you know, during the pandemic, uh, consumers stayed home; they weren't spending as much money. They got those stimulus checks, they put that towards their credit card, got those balances, you know, down pretty significantly, and now we're we're above. Uh, where where they were um, before the pandemic, so uh, the credit card balances are are inflated, and really it just sort of says to me that the consumer is trying everything they can to maintain their lifestyle uh, with not just rising food and gas prices, but really sort of rising rents has been it's got to be a big issue for those people that are renting homes instead of owning their homes. If you own a home, you're a little bit more um, insulated from inflation. So all of those things. Um, you know, seem to be uh, having a huge impact. And it seems like the consumer kind of getting in a worse and worse situation as each month wears on and those higher, um, you know, prices uh, are sort of more cycled through um, sort of with specifically with CPGs. A lot of them have, you know, taken more recent rounds of price increases that are now about 15% above year ago levels. So consumer credit, um, you know, a concern for, uh, you know, consumers. The next one I want to bring up is uh, retail sales uh, for food and, and beverage um, you know, industry. And, and what's so um, you know, impressive about this, or maybe not impressive, maybe concerning about this, 
is you see this huge spike in March of 2020. Well, that makes sense. Uh, the restaurants were shut down. We all went out to Costco or Sam's Club and loaded up our, our pantries. Um, and, you know, you might have thought, well, we're not going to get back up to that level for many years. These, these numbers aren't, are not adjusted for inflation, but typically, you know, we're sort of used to this low inflation uh, food um, environment sort of before the past couple of years. And now remarkably, as of um, the most latest, latest data point, we're almost, consumers are spending almost as much at retail for food and beverage as they did when there was no other option but to buy your food and beverage at retail, almost back up to that March of 2020 level. And you sort of look at that and, and say, and just sort of do the math and say, well, okay, retail sales up about 21% versus pre-pandemic levels. And, and that's kind of, um, you know, in, inflation sort of, you know, less any adjustment for still some people I think maybe are, are eating out a little bit less, even though it does seem like restaurants are completely uh, full and that's been sort of two years, you know, one on top of the other of food prices that have, have increased sharply. You know, recall last year, meat prices were up anywhere from 20% to 40%. Now that we're into this year, sort of overall grocery prices are up 13 to 14% on average. There's certain items that are way up uh, above that and sort of that 25% or more range, things like eggs and anything related to dairy, uh, butter in particular, um, you know, very expensive. So, you know, grocery prices still, you know, on the rise, still seem to be like they're, that they're up, uh, you know, month over month. They haven't seen a lot of, uh, you know, relief there. So uh, that's taking a big, um, you know, I- impact in, in consumers' budgets, but consumers don't really seem to be changing their behavior all that much. And the one thing that's keeping uh, consumers afloat to bring up the, the job openings rate for, for, for non-farm, and these are still at a really high level where the job openings about 40% above pre-pandemic levels. Now you could say, well, some of those job openings were sort of double posts or um, you know, additional listings, uh, sort of realizing that your attrition rate is, is a little bit higher than it has been historically. I know I follow the railroad industry, for instance, very closely, and their attrition rates have been up in that 8 to 10% range, which is high for them. And most of those guys uh, get in and they stay their whole, their whole career. So uh, you know, really, uh, but but still, I think this speaks to a, still a very tight uh, labor market. Um, you know, even though it seems like there's going to be more availability of tech workers after all the cuts at Twitter and uh, Meta, but um, I don't know that that translates nicely into uh, the shortage of uh, in addressing the shortage of workers for all the consumer packaged goods. The CPG companies have had trouble with, you know with getting guys in to have. Um, you know, do, do the meat processing, churning butter, sort of these kind of these low-level jobs. It almost seems like there's been a, an overeducation of the of, of the labor base. So there's this mismatch between um, you know education level, skill level, and the jobs that um, are actually required. And, and and maybe it's the automation is the ultimate um, you know balance you know thing that's going to balance that. There was a lot of interesting commentary at the um, at our conference last week about. You know, changing demographics, what's that's going to do to the to the labor market? And I thought the the interesting um, you know perspective from our, our initial sort of key, keynote speaker is that you know you hear a lot about the U.S. Uh, aging and it is aging, but we're in a better situation than almost any uh, sort of Western industrialized country. And the one that really has the the favorable demographics is is Mexico. So they were very bullish on. Nearshoring was the big um, uh, sort of theme I thought from uh, F three. Uh, last uh, last week. 
Uh, so with that, uh, move on to more uh, you know, company-specific uh, discussion here with uh, Kellogg. So the Kellogg reported last week, still seeing persistent supply chain challenges. Um, have a stock chart on uh, Kellogg, which was a little surprising. I was, you know, running around at uh, F3 last week and saw that uh, you know their their stock was down eight percent after the report. I thought, wow, that must have been a really bad quarter. Sort of went back, uh, you know, looked through the data analyst call, and, and you know, I think there not all that much is wrong. Uh, maybe with the exception of the fact that their cost inputs are rising faster than uh, their, than their pricing. So they they did say that they're seeing a high teens percent increase in costs per kilogram. So they kind of look at it, look at it as a unit of cost per weight of food. So high teens percent increase in cost, mid teens percent increase in, in price. So you put those things together, easy to see how that would um, impair their gross margin, which has been a big theme uh, in the CPG industry. Um, you know, the, the gross margins for most of these companies still below pre-pandemic levels. A lot of the CPG companies have sort of gone away from trying to um, you know, get the, the margin percentages right where they were before the pandemic and trying to instead to protect gross margin dollars, sort of recognizing that um, you know, the percentages aren't, aren't exactly going you know, gonna, gonna to line up, particularly the, the CPG uh, companies that have, have a good you know, gross margin. Some of the ones that have a really strong uh, brand name tend to have uh, very uh, thick or uh, very wide uh, you know, gross margins. But another big takeaway from Kellogg is supply chain challenges still very present, still having a huge impact, but at least uh, they said that the supply chain issues have stopped getting worse. And so they, so they said for, for a while, every quarter seemed like the supply chain issues were getting worse than the last quarter. They've sort of stabilized at, a, at an adverse level, trying to get the, the store in stocks you know, higher than, we've, than, than they've been. Um, you know, heard about, more about supply chain challenges from CPG companies the last you know, few quarters than really you have had historically. Some of the other companies that have talked about that include you know, General Mills. They've talked about how you know, their, their supply chain challenges have, have, had, a, have had a big issue. And, but you know, nevertheless, uh, General Mills has been able to take some market share from you know, Kellogg's and other uh, competitors, um, but but really, um, you know, the the supply chain issues or lack thereof kind of really dra- uh, impacting uh, the relative market shares. So they said that um, you know the, the Kellogg uh, you know cereal sort of sales year to date uh, slight decline, um, but that's versus the category which is at a high single digit growth rate, which you know mostly on on, on price. But they said more recently that's that near that spread has narrowed from. Uh, more like 10% to more like 1%. So uh, Kellogg supply chain seems to be improving, at least in, 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 in cereal. Um, think the big you know, drag is just, is just the cost side. Um, you know, the, the, I think going into this year, most of the CPG companies thought of 2022 as a year where they were going to recover, um, you know, have a lot of margin recovery. That didn't work out quite as well as they would have thought because uh, of the war in Ukraine really caused the ingredient prices to to rise. Um, and there's also been a lot of shortages and challenges with supply chain on the packaging side. I mean, a lot of these food products have very specific, you know, packaging. And so a quote that stood out to me, you know, last week was uh, Kraft Heinz talked about how, you know, on any given day, there's a shortage of something. There's either some uh, ingredient that they don't have, some, you know, type of packaging material that, that they don't have. So um, still, you know, on, on stock rates, you know, worse than, than, they, than they would like to be. Um, another you know, sort of interesting thing from uh, Kellogg is they talked about their European business and they said in Europe, 
their um, elasticity is getting closer to normal levels. So for the most part, CPG companies sort of earlier this year um, and last year said, you know, really not seeing a lot of elasticity or changes in volume in response to these higher prices. Lately, they say it's still below historical levels, maybe less than they would have um, expected, but it's, uh, it's, it's rising. And in Europe, it's getting closer to normal. Europe dealing with even worse inflation than they are in the, in the, in the U.S. Um, you know, who knows how the, the winter is ultimately going to play out with the, the natural gas uh, situation there. But I mean, look at food prices in, in um, you know, Germany that stood out. They're up about 19 percent, so a lot higher than that, 13 to 14 percent in the U.S. So sort of grading on a curve, uh, U.S. is in a pretty good um, you know, position. So all those things uh, we'll continue uh, to watch um, and uh, we'll get more into you know, company-specific uh, data like that next uh, week. Um, and uh, we'll get into the rail uh, industry here in a second. But first, just want to give another shout out to RJW Logistics Group. Um, are you assessing the advantages of prepaid versus collect freight management for delivery into retail? RJW's retail consolidation program consistently achieves over 98% on time and in full to ensure stronger shelf presence, increased in stocks, retailer compliance, and overall retail supply chain improvement. Visit rjwgroup.com to speak with a retail logistics expert about the advantages of RJW's program and to make the best decisions for your business. So, um, you know, RJW you know, has a huge uh, sort of warehousing presence in uh, Chicago, has a lot of uh, thoughts on um, you know, all of those issues um, and, and how to, you know, more efficiently, um, you know, you know, use your, your supply chain to, to sell into the, the, the retailers. Uh, next topic here is uh, Kroger's acquisition of Albertsons gets, gets pushed back. I um, thought this was, was interesting that Albertsons was planning to, um, you know, pay a $4 billion, you know, dividend. So their market cap is about $11 billion. So this is, this is, you know, really sizable. Um, Albertsons would have used about 75% of the cash on hand and would have borrowed additional $1.5 billion to make that payout. And uh, this was blocked by a judge on Thursday in uh, you know, Washington, um, sort of making the argument that it would impair the grocer's operations and make it less able to compete with, with uh, Kroger while it's under the antitrust uh, review um, and uh, potentially Kroger can make the argument. Well, you know this the, the merger should go through because Albertson would be in a difficult you know situation financially could go bankrupt. That would actually make fewer um, choices for uh, consumers. So you know of course Albertsons didn't agree. You know thought that you know the higher leverage and lower cash balance as a result of that uh, potential dividend would not have had a, an impact on. You know operations, and um, you know I think uh, the, the the article in the Wall Street Journal was sort of well taken, where they looked at the various leverage ratios, and the leverage ratio for Albertsons, you know, sort of net debt to EBITDA would have gone from one time to 1.9 uh, turns, sort of still would be in line with their uh, sort of peer group. Um, so it did seem like, well, sort of on the surface, that would have been a manageable. Um, level of debt, uh, especially considering that grocery sales uh, doesn't tend to be, you know, all that uh, all that volatile. But you know, I do think it speaks to that this could be a sort of a long drawn out process in terms of, you know, things that have to be done for Kroger to complete this um, acquisition of, of, of Albertsons. You know, they've talked a lot about uh, divesting certain locations. Um, you know, talking about potentially divesting 300 and 100 to 350 locations, sort of around the country and markets where um, Kroger and, and Albertsons uh, sort of compete head to head. 
um, a lot of uh, cities um, that's that's true for, including you know Dallas, Seattle, Denver. <clears throat> I'll move on to a rail labor update. So this is topic that I've been getting a lot of um, you know questions on. Uh, rail, um, you know, the locomotive machinist is the is the latest union to accept the ratification agreement. Just an article was just just went out um, written by Joanna uh, Marsh. Have you know graphic on that? Uh, she talks about how now seven out of twelve unions have ratified agreements after the latest agreement was was ratified by a low margin. In this case, the machinist. It's it's one of the smaller ones, only about five thousand uh, members. Fifty two percent voted in favor of the agreement and. So now, as it stands, uh, we have seven out of the twelve unions have ratified the agreement. Um, you know, two have voted a- against it, so are still trying to work through a new uh, tentative agreement. And sort of the the big uh, sort of guerrillas haven't yet um, you know voted. Those would be the BLET, Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineer and Trainmen. Those um, represent the locomotive engineers who drive the trains. You can't uh, have a railroad without um, guys who drive the trains. And then the other one is Smart TD, which you know used to be you know the UTU, which had the conductors, which I believe that's the largest union rail union in terms of total uh, membership. So those are very uh, critical positions uh, also, and would probably be the, the two um, you know most uh, influential uh, unions. So we'll see how they. A report. Um, they're set to release a results of their vote two weeks from today on the 21st, the Monday before uh, Thanksgiving. So I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of news on this in the next two weeks, but there could potentially be, um, you know, a, a big news story two weeks from uh, now. Hopefully there's not a rail stoppage right before Thanksgiving as Congress goes on uh, on break. You know, if, if, there, if there was a work stoppage, I expect Congress would, in very short order, order the, uh, you know, workers, you know, back, you know, on the on, on the job. Um, and I think it would be a matter of hours would be sort of my personal uh, expectation. Uh, so with that, I'll go on to rail intermodal update. You know, we do have all sorts of uh, data in sonar on rail intermodal and would like to bring up the um, outbound domestic rail container of volume chart. And so first thing uh, sort of tying in with that last topic is on the strike, you see in the white line in the middle of September, that big dip was kind of, you see the the dip for for Labor Day, and then you see like another dip uh, a week later. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, correct data. And that was really driven by uh, Norfolk Southern, um, you know, closing their intermodal terminals to in-gating. And I believe others did that as, as, as well. Norfolk Southern was the one that really came out and issued those public service alerts. And um, I think customers really sort of appreciated that, that they were forthcoming about that. Um, and so you look at that, that data and, you know, what usually happens this time of year is the volume is really strong. You see the, the blue line, the, the, the orange line, the green line, how those really shoot up sort of right before Thanksgiving in white, which is 2022, not seeing that this year. And, and we're right now in the last week, we're down 2% year over year and about 6% below where they were two years ago in uh, 2020. thought J.B. Hunt really summed it up well on their analyst call when they said peak season, not going to be much of an event. It really doesn't look like it's it, it's it's an event. Um, and that's due to you know issues that we talk about every day, sort of the falling import volumes, the very high inventory levels, competition from the highway which that demand seems to be coming down uh, based on the latest uh, tender data and, uh, you know, rail service levels um, have improved some, uh, still, you know, not, not, not great. Um, on the international intermodal side, uh, that seems to be, 
you know, better, although sort of, uh, you know, seem, international intermodal seems to be taking share from domestic intermodal, largely because of the container availability on the international intermodal side, whereas you know, before the um, container ship lines didn't want to send those containers, uh, you know, inland, they needed them back for, uh, you know, more head haul shipments, but uh, there's really been a, a loosening in the availability of, of those containers. So they're more willing to send them from, let's say, the port of LA into Chicago into Dallas. It can take longer for them to get back. Um, and, and, and that's fine. And it does uh, lead to more um, opportunities for exporters to fill those containers with with exports, which is, you know, a lot of uh, you know, agriculture can be can be moved in, in those containers, you know, on the on, on the backhaul. Want to bring up a chart getting back to domestic intermodal on the domestic intermodal uh, rates, and this is another example of a data series that you know normally has a ramp up, you know, towards the end of the year. And so what we're looking at here is average uh, spot rates on intermodal lanes. We have those in about 100 lanes in Sonar, and yes, not much intermodal moves on the spot markets as a percentage of the total, but there's inf information in this data. And when there's you know, congestion and when the railroads are, are concerned about securing, having those containers available for the big contracted shippers, they tend to ramp up these uh, spot rates. And that's exactly what we saw last year, 2020 in, in, in green and, and uh, 2020 in green and last year, 2021 in, in, in purple. That happened even sooner um, you know, in the year, all the way back sort of the start of the the third quarter, you know, really haven't seen it this year. And so that says, well, the, the you know, domestic intermodal shippers, those containers, you know, are available um, and, and they're not concerned about, uh, you know, upsetting those big customers by not having those, uh, you know, containers av available. And, and a lot of those increases tend to be driven by, you know, some of these dense lanes, uh, you know, LA to Dallas, LA to Chicago. There was another um, interesting thing in Sonar, I don't have a chart on this, but, you um, you know, if you look at the dense domestic intermodal lanes, the ones that are down year over year in terms of volume are the ones that are uh, outbound from LA. So LA to Chicago, LA to Dallas, LA to Atlanta, those are all down significantly year over year, also Newark to Chicago. So a lot of these, these lanes that tend to have a lot of transloading from international containers into domestic containers before they moved inland, those volumes are down because there's less transloading. And that means there's, there's more domestic con uh, container availability. It also means for the domestic intermodal companies that there's more balance in the network. And the balance in the network has been one thing that has led to an inefficiency in recent quarters in the, in the network. So um, that's something um, you know, to, to watch. The other thing that's, that's taking place is um, you know, the uh, truckload rates have been weak, uh, particularly on the spot market, and that's made the eastern lanes, which are the lanes that are more competitive with truckload, or more competitive between truckload and intermodal. Those lanes are very competitive right now. Um, one of the stats that stood out from the third quarter earnings season was Hub Group said their local east business. So those are loads, domestic intermodal loads that originate and terminate in the eastern one third of the country, let's say from Chicago to points eastward. Those are down eight. They were down 18% in the third quarter, and that's worse than the, they were down 14% in the second quarter. And you look at some of those those lanes, and you can see that the spot rates, and let's say between Chicago and Dallas, have really fall, fallen off a cliff. Um, and uh, that some of that uh, intermodal business has gone towards uh, the the highway. So 
very competitive across modes, um, you know, in the Eastern U.S. And you know, it's really sort of getting to if I'm you know CPG shipper, which is the the target of this um, uh, of the show. You know, why should you care about that? Uh, I want to bring up our intermodal contract uh, chart, which you know these are intermodal contract rates. They exclude uh, fuel surcharges and. You see that um, you know two years in a row these rates were up sharply you know year over year. So from 2019, which was a weak year for freight, going to 2020, um, and, the, and then um, from to 2021, and, and, and then into 2022. So you really had you know two kind of consecutive years of double digit rate increases on top of double digit rate increases. You see 2020 was in blue, 2021 was in green, 2022 is in is in is in white. And now we're sort of at a point where, you know, last year the rates increased throughout the year. We're kind of lapping that that tough period, so really not seeing a big, you know, increase in the intermodal contract rates that are being processed by you know, this particular, you know, data supplier. And I think you get into next year, I think some of these rates come come down. So I think shippers will start to see relief on the intermodal contract rates, particularly during the bid season that largely takes place in the first half of next year. So to me. Um, you know, the, the, the CPG shippers uh, can get more aggressive on intermodal um, rates. And with that, that's really what I wanted to go over today. For anyone who's not signed up for the Stockout newsletter, I encourage you to do that at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. I hope everyone has a great day.